Chapter Sixteen of the Directory of the Devout Life by F. B. Meyer. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. Chapter Sixteen, The Intention of the Soul, Matthew Chapter Six, Verse Twenty-Two. The eye is the most striking and important feature in the face. Blue as the azure of heaven, brown as hazel, black as jet. It gives expression and beauty to the countenance, fills with tears of pity, sparkles with the radiance of affection, and flashes with the fire of anger. By the eye we are able, therefore, to discern much of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The eye is also urgently needed to enable us to do the work of life. It is by the eye that we are lighted to our toils, discover the path in which we must tread, and look upon the faces of our friends. Or the beauty of God's creation. Each time we see a blind person, or pass institutions devoted for the recovery of sight, let us lift up our hearts to thank God for this priceless boon. It is interesting to notice the comparison which our Lord employs. He speaks of the eye as the light of the body. In other places, the same Greek word is rendered lamp or candle. In the fifth chapter of Matthew, we discover the same expression: "Neither do men light a lamp and put it under the bushel." The same word is used in Luke chapter twelve: "Let your loins be girded about and your lamps burning." It is the word by which John the Baptist is designated in John chapter five: "He was a burning and a shining light." In contradistinction to the other term applied to our Lord alone. That was the true light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. The ministry of John was the lamp that lighted the steps of men until the Son of Righteousness arose with healing in his wings. The eye, our Lord says, is the lamp of the house of the body. It is as though he thought of the eye as hanging in the vestibule of the palace of life, casting its rays outward to the busy thoroughfare and inward to the recesses of the soul. It is obvious that there must be something in our inner life which corresponds to the eye, for our Lord adverts to the eye as the emblem and symbol of something within. He is not speaking of the eye of the body only, but of its correlative, the eye of the soul. What is that inner eye? Some have supposed that it is the power of a concentrated affection, for truly love sheds a warm glow over all the furniture of the inner life, as well as upon the great world without. Others have affirmed that the intellect is the eye of the soul, by which we are able to behold the ordered process of the world, and to consider the processes of thought within us. A truer conception of our Lord's meaning, however, will lead to the conclusion that the eye of the body corresponds to the inward intention and purpose of the soul. If, for a moment, you will examine your inner life, descending to the profound depths that lie beneath the surface of your being. You will discover that there is one deep aim or purpose, which is the real intention of your life. Deep down, below the play of emotion and intellect, and of engagement in various interests, there is one strong stream or current running perpetually through the dark ravines of your nature. It may be that you are hardly aware of it. Your nearest and dearest friends do not realize it. You would be startled if it were stated in so many words, but it is none the less true. That there is a unity in each human character which God perceives, in each of us He can read a unity of purpose and a unity of will. This is the intention of the soul, 
and distinguishes each of us from everyone beside. The eye may of course be healthy or unhealthy. If healthy, a tiny curtain which hangs at the back of the organism is adjusted to receive the focused rays which come from external objects. On this tiny curtain is formed an inverted image of all things which are visible. If you look into the eye of another, and especially into the eye of a little babe, you will see the whole panorama of the world presented as in a cinematoscope. This curtain is perpetually being readjusted so that the unblurred image of the outer world may be cast upon it. When we are traveling in a railway train, it is probable that in a single hour the focus is altered thousands of times, for at every jolt and oscillation of the vehicle there must be a readjustment of the lens. When the eye is in an unhealthy condition, the image is doubled or blurred. There are two ways in which it may become evil. To use a common expression, there may be the obliquity called a squint, such as disfigured the noble face of Edward Irving. Mrs. Oliphant tells us that as a babe he was laid in a wooden cradle, through a hole in which he was able to watch the light with one eye, whilst the other retained its usual straightforward direction. His eyes, therefore, were not parallel, and it was impossible to focus them upon a given object. The soul's intention may be diverted from a single purpose in a double direction. We may pray with the object of gaining an answer from God, and at the same time of receiving credit from man. We may try to amass the treasures of this world, and at the same time to be rich towards God. We may endeavor to serve two masters, God and mammon. This is the counterpart in the spiritual life of a squint in the eye. Another source of ill health with the eye is when the little vesicles, which supply blood for the tiny curtain, become overcharged, so that it is impossible for the delicate nerves to adjust the lens, and the vision becomes blurred and indistinct. Yet another source of the evil eye is when a film forms over the surface of the pupil, so that the light cannot enter. In contradistinction to all these evils, how good it is to have a clear eye, with its distinct vision, and how much more good it is, when the purpose and intention of the soul is so divided that the whole of life is illumined by the glow of a clear and beautiful radiance. All through this chapter our Lord is arguing against this double vision. He says, Do not profess to belong to the kingdom of heaven while your hearts are buried in the earth. Do not have two masters. Do not be divided by anxious care. Seek first the kingdom of God. All through this chapter he is, in fact, bidding us to make our constant prayer the cry of the psalmist, Unite my heart to fear thy name. Our Lord sets his whole force against any duplication of character, so inimitably described by John Bunyan in Mr. Facing Both Ways, who, with one eye on heaven and another on earth, sincerely professed one thing and sincerely did another, and from the inveteracy of his unreality was unable to see the contradiction of his life. He tried to cheat both God and the devil, and in reality he only cheated himself and his neighbors. There are three kinds of men. First, those who have no intention. Second, those who have a double intention. Third, those whose intention is pure and simple. One, some have no intention. They live day by day without purpose. The eye of the mind is fixed, definitely and intently, upon nothing. They take each day as it comes, getting from it anything it may bring, doing the duty it demands, but their existence is from hand to mouth, at haphazard, 
with no aim, no ambition, no godly purpose. They cannot say, with the apostle, that they are leaving the things which are behind and pressing forward to the things which are before, or that one thing they are ever engaged in doing. It is quite true that in many cases there may be no great cause to be championed, no subjects to be explored, no object in making money, because already there is an ample competence. Some may read these words who are daughters in a wealthy home, or young men, the heirs of a considerable fortune, or people in humble life who have no urgent need to look beyond the day or week with its ordinary routine. But even these should have a supreme purpose, to bring down the new Jerusalem out of heaven, to establish the kingdom of God amongst men, to hasten the coming of the day of Christ, or to be themselves purer and holier. To become may always be the supreme purpose and intention of the soul, to be a little more like Christ, to know and love him better, to be able to shed more of his sweetness and strength upon others. There is no life so contained within the high walls of circumstances that it may reach up towards the profound light of the azure sky that arches above. Do not be content to drift through life. Do not be satisfied to be a piece of flotsam, swept to and fro by the ebb and flow of the stream. Do not be a creature of circumstance, because it is certain that if you are not living with a divine purpose for God and eternity, you are as certainly living for yourself, for your ease, for mere indolent enjoyment, or to get through the years with as little fret and friction as possible. This, at the heart of it, and in such a world as this, so abject and needy, is undiluted selfishness. To have no purpose is to have the worst purpose. To have no ambition is to be living for self. To have no intention is to be drifting through the wide gate, in company with the many that go in thereat, to their own destruction. 2. Some have double intention. They have heard the call of Christ, and have received the seed of the kingdom, but, so soon as it reached their hearts, two strong competitors endeavored to share with it the nutriment of the soul. On the one hand, there were the cares of the world. These largely have place in the poor and struggling. On the other hand was the deceitfulness of riches. These principally are found among the opulent and well-to-do. For a brief interval there was a struggle as to which of these should be master, but the strife soon ended in the victory of the sturdy thorns. Those ruthless brigands seized for themselves all the sustenance that the soil of the heart could supply, and grew ranker and taller, until the tiny corn withered and failed to bring forth fruit to perfection. Will you not examine yourself? You think that you are whole-hearted, whereas you may be double-hearted, or, to use the apt simile of the prophet, baked on one side and not on the other, or, to use the simile of the great dreamer, looking one way and rowing another. You seem to be very earnest in Christian work, but are you quite sure that your apparent devotion does not arise from a masterfulness of disposition that likes to be independent and rule? May it not be due to a fussy activity, which must be engaged in many directions that the soul may escape from itself, or to a natural pity and sympathy for men, which would incite you to do a similar deed, even though you had never heard of Christ? Of course you say to yourself that your motive is pure and single, and that you only desire to glorify God, but in His sight it may be that you are really actuated by the natural propensities of your nature, by your desire to be first, or by your appetite for notoriety or money. The heart is so deceitful that it becomes us to examine ourselves with all carefulness, 
lest at the end of life we shall find that whilst we appeared to be doing God's work, we were really doing our own, and that whilst our friends gave us credit for great religious devotion, we were really borne along by a vain, proud, and unworthy purpose, which robbed our noblest service of all value in the sight of eternity. As the Apostle says, the one supreme intention of every child of God should be to please God. How few of us can say with him, Whose I am and whom I serve. It is a very small thing that I should be judged of you, or of man's judgment. He that judgeth me is the Lord. 3. Let us see to it that we have a pure and simple intention. Our aim should be to set our whole soul upon one thing only, to do the will of God, so that the whole of our religious life may be spent before the Father, who seeth in secret, that our alms, our prayers, our fastings, should be for His eye and His alone, and that the whole of our life should emanate from hidden fountains where God's Spirit broods, like those fountains of the Nile concealed in the heart of the great mountains, the secret of which has so long defied the research of the explorer. The lamp of a holy life is the pure intention of the soul, which seeks to gain nothing for itself, which has no desire to please men or to receive their commendation, which does not shirk adversity or court sunshine, but which sets before it, as its all-sufficient goal, that God may be well pleased, and that at the close of life's brief pilgrimage it may be said of each of us, as it was said of Enoch, he had this testimony, that he pleased God. How blessed such a life is! The light of the soul's pure intention illuminates God, duty, human love, the glory of creation, and the significance of history, literature, and art. I remember once in my life, at a most important crisis, when for weeks I was so torn between two strong conflicting claims that at last I was compelled to put aside all engagements and to go alone into the midst of nature, where I carefully examined my heart to its very depths. I found that the cause of the difficulty to ascertain God's will arose because I allowed so many personal considerations to conflict with the inner voice, and when I definitely put these aside, and stilled and quieted my life so that I became conscious of being impelled by one purpose only, to know and to do God's will, then the lamp of a pure intention shed its glow upon the path which I became assured was the chosen path for me. And since I dared from that moment to follow, all other things have been added. It was when Solomon asked that he might have a wise and understanding heart, that he might know God's purpose, that God gave him honor, wealth, and length of days. Again and again these words of Christ ring out amongst us as the deepest that he ever spoke. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. If the lamp of the pure intention of the soul is not kept pure and clean, how great is the darkness! Our Lord alludes, of course, to the fact that when darkness settles upon the forest, the beasts steal forth, the glades resound to the roar of the lion, the cry of the jackal, the laugh of the hyena. Multitudes of beasts that have lain quiet in their lairs whilst the sun was shining creep forth, and our Lord says that when a man's heart is set on doing God's will, the lower and baser passions of his nature, like so many beasts of prey, remain in their hiding places. But as soon as the blur comes, and the soul ceases to live for the one intense purpose of pleasing God, then darkness steals upon the house of life, and all manner of evil and unclean things, 
that otherwise would be shamed into silence and secrecy begin to reveal themselves. How great is that darkness! If I am addressing men who are conscious that there is a darkness upon life, upon truth, upon the word of God, if they are perplexed and plagued by the intrusion of evil things which fill them with misgiving, let me urge them to ask God to cleanse the thoughts of their hearts by the inspiration of His Holy Spirit, that they may perfectly love Him and worthily magnify His holy name. End of chapter 16